Good evening. Welcome to the Legal Legal Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Joyner. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law. We thank you for joining us this evening. This is a very special year for the United States Supreme Court, the highest court in the land. For the first time in history, an African-American woman is presently engaged in the confirmation process that is required before a nominee can be elevated as a member of the Supreme Court. That unique honor of being considered for confirmation has been provided to Judge Katenzi Brown Jackson, presently a sitting judge on the U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia, which is considered by many as the second highest court in the country. For four days, Judge Brown Jackson was subjected to a grueling series of hearings before the United States Senate Judiciary Committee, where several elected senators engaged in a robust partisan effort to undermine her nomination. This regular confirmation process was turned into an effort to paint Judge Brown Jackson in a negative light in an attempt to convince a sufficient number of senators to question her qualifications to become a member of the Supreme Court. Tonight, we're going to discuss those hearings and the strength of Judge Brown Jackson's outstanding qualifications. Joining us for this discussion are Professor Donald Corbett, a constitutional law expert at NCCU School of Law, and Assistant Professor Tamika Moses, a former Assistant United States Attorney for the Eastern District of North Carolina and a criminal law expert. We thank you for joining this discussion. Thank you for having me, Professor Joyner. All right. Well, let me just start us out uh, for our audience who may, may, not, uh, may not know what the process is all about. Can the both of you kind of educate us about the confirmation process for the U.S. Supreme Court? What is its history, its importance in reviewing the qualifications and suitability of a nominee to that uh, high office? So why don't we start with... Uh, uh, Professor Moses. Professor Joyner, thank you for having me. Um, I was going to say I'm going to start with Professor Corbett, but to answer your question um, related to the importance of the hearing, I'm going to focus specifically on Congress's duty to advise and consent, right? So after the president provides a nominee um, to Congress or the Senate in particular, um, it is their job then to have these hearings to evaluate whether or not the nominee is the appropriate person for the Supreme Court. Um, and typically um, what they do is they go through the person's um, history um, as whatever um, position they held in the past um, to get a sense of what their judicial philosophy would be, um, what their positions would be on issues that were likely to be presented before the Supreme Court, right? And so in Judge Jackson's case, um, they were focusing more on um, whether or not she had a philosophy to begin with, 
But if you think about the prior nominees, I'm thinking of Judge Justice, I should say, Amy Coney Barrett in particular, a lot of focus was on what was her position on Roe v. Wade um, and what would she be doing should that case be presented to the court once she is seated, right? And so all of that is part of the process um, because the, the Senate wants to make sure that the person that is going up to the court has the appropriate philosophy, the appropriate qualifications, and is able to sit on that seat as an individual jurist. Okay. Uh, Professor Corbin. Sure, and, and thank you again for inviting me to participate. I, as usual, Professor Moses is right on point with everything she's described. Uh, what I will tell you a little bit about is kind of the history of these hearings and, and what a lot of people don't know is that the court, I'm sorry, that the uh, Senate, which is kind of entrusted with the vote up or down on any Supreme Court nominee, they didn't even hold these confirmation hearings until 1916. Before then, it was just a vote of yes or no once the president made the nomination. Then uh, Woodrow Wilson nominated a gentleman named uh, Louis Brandeis. I think I, I never can get his name pronounced, but I hope it's Brandeis. But he was actually the first Jewish nominee uh, to go up before the court and or to go before uh, the Senate. And there was an anti-Semitic wing of the Senate that wanted to find out more about him. So they I asked much more in the way of intentional questions about his qualifications. The other thing that happened with him was that after he had made a ton of money, he, he turned his skills on money, parties, and corporations, and he made a lot of enemies. So there were a good number of people that did not want to see him elevated. He didn't actually attend the hearings, and ultimately he was selected before the court. But, but nominees actually appearing before the Senate didn't really happen again, until the late 30s. And the Q&A process that we see now didn't really start until the late 50s. And that was after you had decisions like Brown v. Board of Education, where the conservative centers from the South were upset with the Supreme Court and wanted to have more control over who went up. You had other people who were concerned about national security because we were engaged in the Cold War. So, so then you, you started getting much more in the way of intentional questions for nominees and questions about the philosophy that Professor Moses referenced. Uh, and then I think, unfortunately for all of us, they began appearing on television. And uh, senators love being on television. And unfortunately, I think uh, it's become more of a show. It, these shows have increasingly gotten ugly. And I think it's denigrated the body as a whole and helped in the public perception of the politicization of the court. But, but that's kind of a history of, of how the hearings have come about to supplement the substance that Professor Moses just spoke to a minute ago. Well, looking looking at that uh, at that history and uh, how these uh, hearings have uh, evolved over the years, uh, what are the rules? Or are there any rules uh, for to guide these senators in what it is that uh, legitimately they can inquire into uh, uh, during this uh, during this process? I think the rules are what they say they are. Uh, I know that each each member, uh, Professor Joyner, the Judiciary Committee, gets 30 minutes total to question the nominee. And that's why it takes so long. And, and if you watched any of these hearings, whether it was Professor or whether it was Justice Brown Jackson or Justice Kavanaugh or Coney Barrett before her, you know that there's a lot of speechifying and pontificating that goes in before there's an actual question. So unfortunately, like I said, it, it has turned into a showpiece or showcase for individual senators who may have larger political agendas 
And I think we saw some of that with Justice Brown Jackson. And, and I think we also saw that, you know, some of the questions were trying to shape people's perceptions with regard to the Democratic Party uh, because the midterm elections are coming up. So, so all of those things have become a part of it. And that's where the 30 minutes comes in. And they have regular parliamentary procedures, which they routinely violate in the process of asking, of, of interviewing these people. And, you know, there's a thump of the gavel and, you know, maybe the person will stop, maybe they won't. But unfortunately, we do not see what I would call a tight process, uh, given the cameras that are often present for the, uh, for the candidate. Well, Professor uh, Moses, uh, as an African-American woman, and I know you were very proud of this uh, nomination and probably would have been prouder had you been the nominee. Uh, but um, what were your feelings about the uh, tenor of the questions posed to uh, Judge uh, Brown Jackson as opposed to the tenor of those questions uh, direct to uh, uh, the last uh, female to be uh, uh, interviewed uh, by this same panel? Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up. Um, because sometimes as a black woman, you question yourself as, you know, am I taking this the wrong way? Um, and watching the hearings, I definitely saw the difference between how Judge Jackson was treated versus now Justice um, Coney Barrett, right? With Justice Coney Barrett, it was more handholding. Um, the questioning itself, the tone was more gentle. Um, and they weren't on the attack as much as they were with Judge Jackson, right? With Justice Amy, Amy Coney Barrett, there was a huge issue related to Roe v. Wade and her position on it. And she kind of teetered a little bit. She wouldn't answer the questions directly, but at no point did they attack her the same way that they attacked Judge Jackson, right? And with Judge Jackson, when you look at her qualifications, there wasn't much for her to be questioned about, right? So they went on these tangents talking about CRT. Are you going to be integrating that into our judicial body? Um, talking about how she's soft on crime, um, talking about her sentencing decisions in a small amount of cases compared to the amount of cases she has actually heard as a judge. All of that to distract from the fact that she was extremely qualified, right? And also, in a, they did it in a way that did not allow her, one, to answer the questions that were presented so that she could actually defend herself. Um, but two, to show how she was actually doing something correctly, right? So one example would be when they questioned her about the sentencing procedures, when she tried to explain to them how the procedure works, how the guidelines come into play, how the pre-sentencing pre report comes into play, she always got cut off. She was never able to answer because they knew had she been provided that opportunity, it showed that they were just blowing a lot of smoke, right? Because of the cameras that were in side of the building and because they had this agenda to make sure that they were ready for the midterm. So I was extremely disappointed, um, but not surprised, right? We know this history, we've seen it before. Um, and, and so we're oftentimes prepared for it as Judge Jackson was. Professor Moses, so you mentioned the cameras in the courtroom and as I was watching her and um, as, a, as a black woman and kind of imagining what my facial expressions, just my whole attitude and approach had I been in that seat, right? Can you talk about um, the constraints that she was under in terms of how she appeared on camera 
and 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 how that was an additional kind of weight that that one has to carry particularly if you're a black woman right yeah so as a black woman she knew that she would be under a different standard right placed under a different standard as it relates to any kind of emotion she was able to display in response to the ridiculous questions that were being presented so she did a very good job of keeping her poker face on answering the questions as they were presented not getting emotional and making sure that she really checked her emotions at the door um, there were some points in day two where the tears were warranted, of course, um, particularly I'm talking about when um, Senator Booker was talking to her about the, the fact that she was more than qualified, needed to be there, was supposed to be there, right? That garnered some emotion. But otherwise, she held her own and was able to just stand those senators down, answer the questions, and make sure that she kept that poker face on because she knew had she acted like prior nominees, I'm thinking of Justice Kavanaugh in particular, it would be a whole different story, right? And it would detract from the fact that she's more than qualified and she deserves to be in that seat. Mm -hmm. And and Professor Corbett, can you remind us of how uh, now Justice Kavanaugh responded when he felt as though he was being attacked and and just kind of contrast the difference Um, also from a, not just race, but also gender, right? There's a lot of stuff. There's race, there's gender, there's privilege, there's all kinds of things you could dive into if you wanted to. I think to remind people in case they're unfamiliar with it, the part of the reason the Kavanaugh hearing got so contentious was because there was a credible allegation of sexual assault against him. And uh, the uh, senators on the Judiciary Committee were probing those allegations. And I think they they did, I don't want to call it a sham investigation after uh, I think the woman's name was Christine Blasey Ford, who came forward with the allegations, came, came across as very credible, credible enough for them to open an investigation. Uh, they came back about 15 minutes later and said, nope, everything's cool. We're all good. But in that, in, in this subsequent questioning after her testimony, uh, Kavanaugh, I think fair to say was petulant, uh, argumentative, loud, uh, professed his love for beer, um, and, and did all kinds of other things that I thought were not befitting of a nominee. And I think Professor Moses is exactly right. Had Justice Brown Jackson responded in any kind of a similar way, even once, as opposed to a sustained degree of behavior that Kavanaugh engaged in, not only would she not have gotten any Republican votes, I think some Democratic candidates would have, with senators would also have walked away from her. So she did a remarkable job of holding her composure, holding her wits, keeping her wits about her instead of going over the table as I might have. And, 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 and I think by doing so, she actually elevated her status in the eyes of rational thinking people and showed that she had the judicial temperament and disposition to uh, sit on that court in a way that I, I firmly felt Brett Kavanaugh did not display. Yeah, she did not offer uh, the other senators uh, the opportunity uh, to drink beer uh, with her, nor did that even uh, come up. So I, I certainly agree uh, with you about her, uh, her demeanor. Her qualifications were never in question uh, during the uh, entire uh, event. So uh, I uh, give her a strong applause for her ability to do what she did. But this is the uh, Legal Eagle Review. And uh, we are talking with uh, Professor Tamika Moses 
and uh, Professor Donald, Donald Corbett, both are professors at North Carolina Central University uh, School of Law, and we are discussing the uh, confirmation hearing for Judge uh, Kantaji uh, Brown Jackson, uh, who is a nominee now for the uh, highest court uh, in the uh, in the land next week. Uh, she will be up for the initial vote uh, before the uh, Judiciary uh, Committee. And from there, the uh, nomination will go to the uh, full Senate uh, for a, uh, a hearing. But we're going to uh, take our break right now. Then we're going to come back and talk about some of the specifics of the hearings uh, that uh, Judge uh, Brown Jackson was uh, uh, subjected to. Uh, during the uh, four days of uh, robust testimony uh, that uh, she uh, was uh, engaged with at that time. So stay with us and we will be... North Carolina Central University School of Law was founded in 1939 to provide opportunities for African-American students to become lawyers. Embracing our heritage, the mission of NCCU Law is to provide a quality, personalized, practice-oriented, and affordable education to historically underrepresented students from diverse backgrounds to increase diversity in the legal profession. We empower our graduates to become highly competent and socially responsible lawyers and leaders committed to public service and to meeting the needs of underserved communities. NCCU Law is excited to announce the creation of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center, made possible by the generous pledge of $5 million by Intel Corporation. The mission of the NCCU Technology Law and Policy Center is to produce technology-conscious lawyers who will use technology in alignment with the law school's mission to 1. facilitate the efficient, effective, and ethical practice of law, and 2. increase the access of legal information and services to underserved communities. You can learn more about the Technology Law and Policy Center by visiting the NCCU Law website. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. We are talking with uh, Professor Donald Corbett and Professor Tamika Mosey, both uh, law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law. And we're talking about the uh, confirmation hearing for uh, Judge uh, Brown Jackson, who just uh, completed uh, the uh, first round of scrutiny by the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee as she is being considered now for elevation to the um, uh, highest court in the land, the U.S. Uh, Supreme Court, as the first African-American to be so African-American female to be so considered. Uh, and uh, we are talking about that uh, hearing. And uh, I kind of looked at the, the series of questions uh, raised with her and uh, most of them kind of fell into six different areas. And I just want to kind of present uh, those to you to get uh, your uh, reaction. You've mentioned some of them uh, already. Uh, but 
one of the first ones out of the uh, that having to do with her judicial philosophy. Uh, this is a person who is charged with the responsibility of interpreting uh, the uh, Constitution and laws uh, that are enacted uh, in, uh, uh, in the federal government and for state uh, governments to ensure that they comply with the uh, constitutional mandate uh, that we have under the U.S. Constitution, as well as uh, scrutinizing state statutes and constitution to see if they are in conflict with any of those uh, federal uh, concerns. And in, in large part, as, as I recall it, uh, that has to do a lot with reading the statutes, the words of the statute uh, and the Constitution, and uh, looking at past precedent of the, uh, of the court to get a view on how the, uh, the, the, the dispute should be resolved in a manner consistent with uh, their duties. So how does uh, judicial philosophy play a role in this, uh, in this determination? Uh, why don't we start with uh, Professor uh, uh, Corbett? So what the justices Professor Joyner are trying to do to the extent they can is get a feel for how this person is going to rule in cases that are important to them and their constituency. And there are really a couple of different methodologies that are pretty widely accepted and, and sometimes stereotypically so. The first one is what is your viewpoint of the Constitution? Do you see it as a living, breathing document that's supposed to evolve with the times, which is generally seen as a more liberal interpretation of it? Or do you feel like uh, you should be bound solely by the words of the Constitution? And if the issue in play is not listed by the Constitution, then that's not something that the federal government or the federal Constitution was designed to cover. And under the 10th Amendment, the idea is that if the federal government uh, if the federal constitution doesn't address it, then those things unaddressed will revert to the states. So the easy example is the example of uh, Roe v. Wade, which is the case that the court said allowed women to make the decision about whether to terminate a pregnancy largely without government interference, at least for a time period. Well, the people who are against the federal constitutional right that's tied to that particular uh, premise say that the word abortion isn't anywhere in the Constitution. So therefore, you should not uh, uh, have that adopted as a, as a federal right, and the states should therefore handle it. So I think that's a big piece of it. And what you've probably noticed is that the, the judges do their best to answer the question and not answer it at the same time, because they may have cases that come before them and they may not want the answer that they give in the hearing to, uh, to somehow mandate or dictate how they respond if the case actually gets there. So they're usually extremely cautious about how they try to answer those questions. I think Justice Brown Jackson said she had more of a methodology as opposed to a philosophy. I don't know if I'm getting the words exactly right, but that was her way of, I think, just saying, look, I consider everything carefully and I'm not going to go into this looking through a certain prison which is what uh, the senators try to pin down, not just with her, but with most of the people that, that come before them. Professor Moses. I don't have 
have much to add to what Professor Corbett stated. I think a lot of the frustration that came from that line of questioning is the fact that she wasn't willing to box herself into something, right? Because she was providing her methodology. I'm gonna look at the statute or the law. I'm gonna follow stare decisis, right? And so she was very clear about in each case, this is how I look at the case. This is how I evaluate it. And based on my evaluation, this is how I will likely decide it. And for the senators, they wanted her to be more concrete and more structured in saying, if I'm presented with this issue, this is how I will likely um, rule. And she wasn't willing to do that. And I think she did a better job than other nominees of not kind of walking too close of the to the line of saying, I'm going to do this in this particular circumstance. And I think to a certain extent that frustrated them. Um, when you think about Justice Kavanaugh, right, there was a lot of questions about whether or not he was willing to follow precedent. Um, and more oftentimes than not, he answered those questions during the hearing. Yes, I am. Yes, I will. Um, and now some folks are criticizing him because in some of his opinions, he seems to kind of steer away from that um, and decides not to follow precedent because he wants to carve out an exception and go another way. So I think it was smart on Judge Jackson's part to make sure that she didn't kind of box herself in and that she was clear, taking this on a case-by-case -case basis, and I'm going to look at the law and apply it appropriately. And, you know, this, this line of questioning and, you know, the anticipated responses from the nominees really kind of begs the question of what is the purpose of these hearings, right? And, you know, so no judge is going to try to, you know, answer or going to answer a hypothetical if that hypothetical may very well appear before the court and any hypothetical can appear before the court. So these senators know that they're not going to get a clear-cut answer because the nominee, quite frankly, is not able to. But but we still get those questions. And so can both of you kind of share your thoughts on why there were even, like what's what's behind the the asking of these types of questions when we know what the response is going to be and probably should be? I think the hope is that maybe the nominee slips you know, and, and that's, and, and that is, I don't want to get too deep in the weeds, but, but the, back in the, I think early to mid eighties, there was a justice that was being considered named Robert Bork. And he had a number of controversial views about a number of things. And then at his committee hearings, he had the temerity to actually tell the truth about what he felt. And he ended up making a whole lot of people angry and he ended up torpedoing his own nomination. He wasn't approved to the court. So I think every justice after Justice Bork has said, well, we don't want to get borked. So what we'll do is we'll answer as thoroughly as we can without answering the question. And I think that the senators have to know that these uh, these folk are prepared beyond regular or, you know, beyond any degree of preparation we can probably imagine. That's how prepared they are for these hearings. And and they are incredibly smart and very, very unlikely to slip up into a trap or talk themselves into a corner. They're just not going to do it. But uh, I guess hope springs eternal for the people who are doing the questioning, and uh, they continue to do it. And as I said, if you can do that and also increase your name recognition, and if in case you have a super, in case you have a bigger goals, like potentially a presidential run in 2024, I'll ask the questions, and, and you know whatever you say may not even matter in the end, as long as I get my TV time. 
Yeah, Professor Corbett's final point is actually where I was going. I compare everything to a, the criminal process, right? So when the attorney gets up on cross-examination, what matters most on cross-examination is the question, not really the answer, right? And I think the same concept applies, particularly in this time of the hearings, that I don't really care what you're going to say, because I know you're probably not going to slip up and tell me the truth, as long as I'm planting my seed of doubt or pushing my agenda or my talking points, I really don't care what your answer is. And in fact, I might often cut you off because I don't care what your answer is, as long as I get the question out there so that everyone knows I'm getting my talking points in and I'm pushing my agenda. Well, let me, let me go now to uh, Professor Moses uh, without the next uh, question. And uh, the senators spent a lot of time dealing with this uh, during the uh, hearing. And that had to do with her sentencing in uh, several child pornography uh, cases. And uh, as it was presented, uh, child pornography uh, cases are the worst thing, the worst crime that can ever occur in the whole wide world. It is more onerous than is murder uh, or uh, mass murder or any other crimes that people are engaged in. And, it, and I, I was sitting there thinking that, wow, child pornography, as it is prosecuted, is dealing with people who are looking at pictures and images. Uh, they're not participating in the uh, abusive conduct uh, that uh, might be underlying the uh, pictures, but they are merely looking at them. And uh, Josh Harlan, uh, bless his soul, uh, seem to be stuck on this notion that when sentencing an 18-year-old kid who obviously was viewing this pornography or these pictures when he was a teenager, that he should have been uh, sentenced to the uh, electric chair uh, for having done that. Now, you are uh, a former federal prosecutor. So can you bring a little light to exactly what this uh, this child pornography uh, uh, scenario uh, is and how it plays out in the real world and not the one that was created by the images that uh, Senator Hawley presented. Sure. So when you think of child pornography in particular, but any criminal matter in the federal system, um, you have a wide range of conduct that is criminalized under the statute. Right. So as you mentioned, as it relates to child pornography, it could be someone who's just viewing the images. Um, primarily, that's who it's, it's for, um, the statute that they were referring to. Um, but that could be everyone from the 18 year old that you spoke of to an older individual. Right. There's a wide range of people with different criminal histories, different backgrounds um, that all come to the court to be sentenced under the guidelines. And I think what Judge Jackson did a really good job of doing is kind of just walking everyone step by step through all of the elements that you need to consider at sentencing. Sentencing at the state level is much more straightforward than sentencing at the federal level. Um, at the federal level, you have the report called the pre-sentencing report that is compiled that has the defendant's criminal history, meaning any prior convictions they may have had, any prior arrests they may have had, any encounters with law enforcement would be included in that. But also included in those reports is a personal history. Is this person subject to any kind of sexual abuse or any other kind of physical abuse in their childhood, adulthood, whatever? What's their education level? 
Um, what kind of support do they have from family or friends? Do they have any financial obligations that need to be met? You kind of get the whole picture of the individual so that the judge can consider this individual, consider the crime and determine what sentence is appropriate, often within yeah, the guideline range that has been calculated. Um, and so the issue with this line of questioning at the hearing is that one, much of the senators were not available. They weren't privy to the information in a pre-sentence report. Um, and in fact, there was a time during the hearing where one of the Democratic senators were like, wait, you know, we can't be requesting PSRs here. That's people's personal records. They're sealed for a reason. Um, and you can't start making these records a part of a judicial confirmation hearing uh, because, again, there's privacy concerns at stake. Um, and so they're, they're making these arguments without all of the facts, without considering the individual, which is what the judge needs to do, right? You don't just slap a label on all defendants and say, because you're convicted of this crime, death penalty, right? You have to look at the person as an individual. And as she explained in each of those cases, that's what she did. And so the line of questioning is misleading because they're not considering the fact that she did what she was commanded to do under the law. The judge is required to look at the individual, look at the sentencing factors, and determine whether or not this, determine what the appropriate sentence is. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, that, that made a lot of sense. And thank you for sharing that, that perspective. And I will tell you, I was a little caught off guard that that was such a focus. Um, Professor Corbett, can you share your thoughts on why it was that there was kind of the focus on, I mean, of, of all the things that they could question her about, I mean, some of these cases were like, you know, 10, 15 years old, and, you know, that, that there was this um, focus on these particular type of select cases. What, what was going on? So we got to go weird for a second, if you don't mind, but I can do the best I can and explain it to you. So once upon a time, Miles Davis, who's a jazz trumpeter, told people, is not about the notes you play. Sometimes it's about the notes you don't play, right? And in Hawley's questioning, what he wasn't saying was directed to a segment of the Republican base, which somewhere probably between 25% and a third, who believed in this conspiracy theory called QAnon. And one of the heartbeats of that theory is that there is a cabal of democratic legislators and, and politicians who are running this giant pedophile ring. And that that particular uh, set of people is essentially controlling the United States government. And for him, while it looks on the surface, like he is speaking to her about her being allegedly soft on these pornographers. I think what he's really doing is he's trying to gain traction with these people by answering, asking these questions, forcing her to try to answer them. And again, it's not about the answer for him. He's signaling to this set of voters that when I run in 24, I want you to remember that I'm the dude that asked these questions. And, you know, it, it's, it's wacky to me. It's never made any sense, but you know, a couple of years ago, we had a gentleman from Salisbury, which is down the street from Charlotte. That dude drove all the way to Washington, D.C. to a place called Comet Pizza and was looking for pedophiles in the basement because he thought that's where they were. The place didn't even have a basement. And he was arrested and sent to jail. So, so I think he was basically signaling to those people, I'm one of you. I believe you. I trust you. Now, please return my favor when I start this presidential thing in 2024. 
All right, you are listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour with professors Don Corbett and Tamika Moses about the Judiciary Committee's confirmation hearings for Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. We're gonna have to take a quick break. We'll be right back. We hope you stay with us. Hello, my name is Brittany Burks, and I'm currently a 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law, and this is your Community Spotlight. The North Carolina Central University School of Law offers four certificate programs. Upon completion of the specified requirements, law students may earn a certificate in civil rights and constitutional law, dispute resolution, tax law, or justice in the practice of law. As a part of the Eagle Promise, NCCU School of Law offers our students four outcomes upon graduation. Completing a degree program on time, becoming socially and globally engaged, proving leadership, and graduating market ready. More information about any law degree program is at 919-530-6610. My name is Brittany Burks with the Legal Eagle Review. Thank you for listening. Thank you again for tuning in to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. I'm April Dawson and my co-host Irving Joyner and I have been talking with our guests this hour about the confirmation hearings of Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. She has completed the hearings. The Senate Judiciary Committee has completed its work almost. They will be voting on April the 4th. And we will see if she will continue on for consideration by the full Senate. So we have with us here in our Zoom studio, two of our esteemed colleagues, Professor Don Corbett. He is a constitutional law expert here at the law school and assistant professor Tamika Moses, who is also a former assistant United States attorney for the Eastern District of North Carolina. So we were talking the last segment, we had talked about some of the, the questioning that Judge Brown Jackson was getting from, from the senators and some other questions that she got related to defense work that she did, uh, specifically as it related to defense of detainees of Guantanamo Bay. And, you know, again, when we think about what both of you have, have articulated very well, it's not always about the answer, it's about the question who's asking the question, how they're asking the question, who the question is really for. Can you share your thoughts about this line of questioning related to her defense of detainees at Guantanamo Bay? And Professor Corbett, we'll start with you. Well, I will, um, you know, I, for me, it goes back to kind of the fundamental debate that we are having in this country currently, and have really had in the country since the end of the Civil War, which is what kind of country are we going to be? Who matters? Who doesn't? Who's included? Who is excluded? Et cetera, et cetera. And the tone and tenor of the questions essentially 
led you to the belief that the senators believe that there are some people that just aren't worthy of a criminal defense. And because of the, uh, of the accusations lobbed at these individuals, because of, of, I think, the color of their skin, uh, the idea was, well, why did they deserve vigorous defense? Which, which as an attorney, uh, is, is completely counterintuitive to what your job is. You know, we've all had to represent people that we weren't crazy about, but you had to do it because the ethical mandates that you agree to subscribe by when you take the position or you take the oath require you to do that. And that's what she did. And uh, she was essentially attacked for it. I, again, I believe it has to do with the premise uh, that we want to send to the world, which is Democrats are soft on crime. And if you put this person up before the bench, then you know she'll be soft on crime at every chance that she has. And that extends not just to the people that live around the corner from you, but very dangerous people that live uh, all over the world. So it, to, to think that she was supposed to... Uh, to, to not represent them with the advocacy that was required by her job was, you know, it, it was, it was jaw dropping, uh, but it was just one of many jaw dropping things that they asked over the course of, uh, of those hearings. Mm-hmm. And Professor Moses, you are a former federal prosecutor. And can you talk about the role that defense attorneys play in our system of legal advocacy? Yeah, the defense attorneys um, play a very critical role in our system. Um, What they do is they ensure that all defendants are afforded a fair trial. Um, They also make sure that all of their constitutional rights that are associated um, with the criminal justice system are protected, right? So making sure um, that their rights remain silent is protected if that's what they choose to do. Um, make sure that they have the right to present a very vigorous defense should they choose to go to trial, Um, even if they choose to plead guilty to an offense, making sure that their rights are protected during that hearing. And so to challenge her on this ground was particularly offensive in my eyes, because when you think about our system and the ideals it touts, everyone, no matter what kind of crime they committed, is entitled to this zealous zealous advocacy. They're entitled to a defense attorney who is more than competent, as she was, and someone who will make sure that they're presenting the best defense possible, right? Because otherwise, this defendant, this individual, is left to their own devices fighting against the machine called the government, right? And so in this particular case related to the Guantanamo, Guantanamo defendants, I was particularly appalled at the fact that they kind of misconstrued the habeas process in particular. When you think about habeas corpus petitions, one of the main arguments is I'm being held unlawfully, right? So to start with your your questioning with why did you call the president and Secretary Rumsfeld war criminals was disingenuous, inaccurate, and just inflammatory for no reason, right? The main thing that she was arguing there was that her client was wrongly labeled as an enemy combatant, and therefore they did not need to be down in Guantanamo Bay. And that was really the basis of the argument. It was within the scope of the habeas petition and she was in her right to file that document and make the arguments therein. Well, let me just raise a a couple of other quick points uh, that that they raised. And uh, one had to do with uh, her view and use of uh, critical race theory uh, as a judge. And then uh, what I thought was the most asinine question of all, is that how do you define a woman? 
can you just kind of speak to the uh, the seriousness of uh, those two uh, particular points uh, to be raised with someone who is being considered as a uh, nominee to the uh, highest court in the land? Well, I mean, it's, I mean, they're both ridiculous. They're just, they're ridiculous for different reasons. Uh, I, I, what's, what's bigger than a dog whistle? I was going to say the term critical race theory is a dog whistle now to certain audiences, but it's not even a dog whistle anymore. It's like a loud, you know, burst from a Hummer horn or something. You know, the, the idea is we want you to take all of the fears that you have about what is almost exclusively a professional school, graduate school uh, mode of thinking that has very, very little do with the, to, to do with the administration of justice on a daily basis in our courts. And we want to lump her in and make her guilty by association with all of the fears that you believe are uh, that particular line of thinking in is doing to, in terms of doing damage to particularly our elementary school children, none of whom were studying this. So it was basically to make her guilty by association. The woman thing I still haven't quite figured out. I'm assuming that it has to do with, with the, I'm assuming Professor Joyner has to do with the, the proliferation of anti-trans bills that are, that are, that are circulating across the country in state legislatures. But I don't know as a nominee that you actually know how to prepare for answering that question because it's just so, it's such a ridiculous question. And if you think about it along those trans, the, the anti-trans thought process, then there is no right answer to that question. Because if you answer it in a purely biological sense, then it's like, well, what about these trans people? Do you think that they're, you know, are you going to rule for them, et cetera, et cetera. And if you answer it in a more kind of esoteric, open way to include people who have gone through that process, well, now you're the devil incarnate for that particular reason. So, so I didn't, you know, again, I think those, those whistles or hummer horns were speaking to a particular audience that might be watching and had, should have had no bearing whatsoever on anybody's opinion as to whether she can do this job or not. Well, let me just raise this one, uh, and, and, and this is a little off uh, topic of what, where we've been so far, but uh, we have, uh, you know, two women here, uh, two uh, African-American uh, scholars uh, in the law school uh, process. Uh, so two questions. Uh, one having to do with uh, the mommy track. Uh, although it wasn't a question, it was really kind of budding up, and she raised it uh, herself. Uh, in terms of how restricted is that in the uh, job that she is being uh, asked to do. And then it was uh, a, a matter of kind of quiet um, questioning that went to her hairstyle uh, and uh, the uh, hairstyle that she wore uh, during the hearing and as a member of the, of the bench as we were working through the Crown Act uh, what were your opinions uh, about uh, about those two things? So I must have muted the part of the hearing when they started asking about her hair because I totally missed that line of questioning. So I'll leave that. So no, they didn't ask that. They didn't ask that question, but it was kind of out there uh, in the uh, in the public sphere as uh, people watched the uh, hearings themselves. Yeah, so I'll start with the hair first. Um, I, I think we're, we're getting to a point, at least in the Black community, um, where we understand that we're going to show up as our authentic selves. 
Um, and it's funny that you mentioned her hair because when she first was nominated to the district court bench, I was ending my clerkship in Baltimore and considering what I was gonna do next. I think at that point I knew I was going to DC. Um, and seeing her with those sister locks while I was transitioning into like being completely natural from relaxers just blew my mind. I was like, look at this lady who has accomplished so much. By then, you know, she had been at the Sentencing Commission. She had been a federal public defender. She had done other things at a law firm. And I was like, if she can do that with her sister locks then I can do whatever I want too, right? So that just encouraged me to keep transitioning um, to a more to natural hair uh, because I knew that I was qualified to do whatever it was I wanted to do next outside of my clerkship. And she actually encouraged me to do that just by showing up as herself. Um, so to the extent there was any suggestions or insinuations that her hair maybe was unprofessional or a problem, I think this goes back to why people were excited about her nomination to begin with. It, goes, it boils down to representation, right? When I think of my child or other young girls who are afraid of stepping out into the professional world as their authentic selves with their authentic hair, they can look at people like Judge Jackson and know that they can show up as long as they put that work in and they're qualified, um, they'll end up where they need to be. To your first point regarding the mommy track, um, her introductory comments related to that really resonated with me uh, because as a mother, you are juggling so many different things. And there are times, no matter what anybody says, that you're not doing that perfect balancing act. Sometimes work is going to take over. Um, and family suffers and, and vice versa. Um, and so I thought it was great that she kind of put that at the forefront and saying that I know I wasn't always super mommy at times, but I hope you can see in where I am now that hard work pays off. And I hope that it was worth it at the end of the day. And I think what that puts at the forefront is something that women, regardless of race, deal with on a daily basis. Do I pursue my wildest dreams or do I kind of temper my goals to make sure that I'm home with my kids and or my spouse. Um, and that's something that people have to, it's a decision that has to be made on a daily basis. And of course, it's an individual decision. Um, I think it's unfortunate that we have to make those decisions as women, um, but it is our reality at, at this time. And so again, I applaud her for bringing that out to the forefront during her remarks. Yeah, as far as the uh, the natural hair, um, yeah, I just echo everything that that Tamika said. I mean, representation matters, and you know, I remember there was a time when my daughters, I you know, wouldn't let them process their hair, and and folks in all communities question that decision. You don't have to worry about having those types of conversations anymore because women um, are, as Tamika said, coming as their authentic selves. And so to see someone who has accomplished so much, who is soon to be Justice Katanji Brown Jackson, it really does mean a lot to, um, to Black women. As far as the mommy reference, I, I really appreciated that as well. And I think when I think about struggles that mothers often face, mothers who are working mothers, who are professional mothers, particularly Black women, and we think about the wealth disparity in this country, it's not all equal, right? The, the burdens that, that mothers, working mothers are saddled with, it, it's different if you come from a community, if you come from a family that doesn't have intergenerational wealth. 
So that just like adds to the difficulty and the challenge of that. I, I really appreciated Judge Brown Jackson kind of talking about her family, talking about, you know, going to school when her father was in school and, you know, just her background. And it shed some light on how committed she was to doing the hard work, but also recognizing that she may not have been able to to do it all, right? And and making that decision as a Black woman, I think it just, it, it can be more weighty, right? When you think about the communities from which we come. And so, you know, again, her being open and transparent about having fallen short, as we all have, takes some weight off those of us who sometimes beat ourselves up for not being perfect. It's okay not to be perfect, right? We, we all have our imperfections. And so it just means a lot, um, as Tamika said, not just to Black women, but women all over who are trying to do the best they can, right? Be true to themselves, be supportive of their family, and realizing that, you know, it's okay if you're not perfect. And, and then we also need to celebrate the fact that uh, her father is a proud graduate of North Carolina Central. Uh, university. And uh, so there's a little eagle blood floating uh, in there. And uh, we are proud of that because many people were not aware of that little historic uh, fact. Yes, and that's definitely something we need to um, emphasize more. She is family, right? She is part of part of the nest by extension of her of her father. Um, So we want to ask you all, we've got a few minutes left. What are your kind of overall um, conclusions about, you know, the hearing and whether you think that she will be ultimately confirmed to the Supreme Court? And Professor Moses, we'll start with you. So starting with your last question, I, I do believe she'll be confirmed. I believe they have, I, ha- I believe they have the votes necessary to get it done. Um, but to your first question, we're in bad shape, y'all. Really, really bad shape. Um, each time I look at these hearings, they get more and more ridiculous. Each time I look at the state of our congressional bodies, I see how much work we don't get done because nobody can reach a consistent consensus on anything. And that's scary, quite frankly. When you couple that with what happened back on January 6th, I really don't know where we're going. Um, and as someone with young children, I worry about that. And so I just keep looking for signs of improvement. I, I don't see it yet. I'm holding out a little bit of hope, but I, I am scared. Um, and not scared in the sense that I'm, I'm having sleepless nights. I just really don't know where we're going as a nation. And that's concerning. I, I share those, those sentiments. I, you know, in terms of Justice Brown Jackson, I mean, she's I mean, it's taken us 220 years to get to this point, you know, and and in a time when symbolism remains important, this is a, a, a massive deal for, for our community for the reasons that both of you just so eloquently spoke to a few minutes ago. Part of me struggles with that just a little bit because I don't want to infer that she's the first Black woman qualified to be on the bench or mm-hmm. smart enough to be on the bench because that's not the case. She's just the first with an opportunity to do it. And, and, and I think that is, is a, a, a tremendous, tremendous achievement and, and makes me very happy. 
Now, to Professor Moses's point, you know, she, I do think she's going to be um, ultimately confirmed. But just to kind of underscore what Professor Moses said, Thurgood Marshall obviously was the first uh, Black justice to, to be elevated by the uh, elevated to the court. It was 1967. We were what three years from the Civil Rights Act, two years from the Voting Rights Act, and there was obviously intense questioning of him, of, of certain senators from certain parts of the country. But ultimately, he was confirmed by a vote of 69 to 11, okay, in 1967. Katanji Brown-Jackson may not, despite her sterling qualifications, she may not get 55 votes because of the, the kind of, of partisanship and rancor that Professor Moses just talked about a second ago. And that's kind of a shame. Because ultimately, you know, we're all penalized by, by that particular uh, groundswell of nothingness is really what it is. So, so I'm ultimately incredibly happy for her. Uh, I was so proud to see the way she carried herself on the biggest of national stages, but still disappointed that in a time that was rife with overt racial discrimination and the like, Justice Marshall still got more votes than Katanji Brown-Jackson will in her confirmation vote in a couple of weeks. It's sobering. Well, we are going to invite you to back to the show um, after we have Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson elevated to the court to get your thoughts on what the future may hold for the court. And hopefully uh, we'll be able to see a a brighter day, Um, but we're so excited and appreciative of of this progress because it is long, long, long overdue. So unfortunately, we are out of time. We'd like to thank our guests, Professor Don Corbett, constitutional law professor and expert here at NCCU School of Law, Assistant Professor Tamika Moses, a former Assistant United States Attorney for the Eastern District of North Carolina and a criminal law expert. And of course, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed engaged, healthy, and safe.